Please note there's a few explicit words in this podcast, so if you have young kids nearby, you may want to cover their ears from time to time. Hey, what's up, Jason? So we just had a great conversation with Christian from Leftfield, New York. I feel like Christian is a New York folk hero. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I love this guy. I want to be friends with this guy 24-7, and I want him to be my neighbor. <laughs> I want to spend the weekends at a store drinking beers, and I don't even drink beer. <laughs> Well, I, I'll know where to find you on the weekends going forward. Yeah, but you know, one of the core takeaways for me was just like the reverence that Christian has for the products that he makes. I think he's a dude who like really appreciates the value of hard work. And I feel like he's worried that we as a people, it's like the American project, are beginning to lose that. So he's really like brought that back and poured that into all the products that he's making. It was just um, amazing to hear like the commitment he has to, to quality. Uh, in everything that he makes. Yeah, definitely. Um, everything from his dishware to his bandanas and his clothing line, uh, just like all the little facets and details that he absolutely loves. Um, and he just, he's such a passionate guy. He just does it for the love and does not even care about making a profit from it. Not the greatest business model, but he just does not care and he just does it for the love which is you have to admire someone like that well christian definitely tells it like it is so let's get to the show the new york denim hangs podcast bringing denim lovers together all welcome come hang Hi, everybody. Welcome to the New York Denim Hangs podcast. Check us out on Instagram at NYDenimHangs. I'm Eric, the founder of New York Denim Hangs, and I'm on Instagram at fitted.underground. Hey, I'm Jason, and you can find me on Instagram at Happy Valley Outfitters. And today we're speaking with Christian McCann, who is the founder of Left Field NYC, right up the road in Ridgewood, Queens, and is an industry veteran of over 25 years. Christian, welcome, man. Hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? Hey, Christian. Good to finally talk to you. So where are we, uh, where are we talking to you from today? Um, I am in the shop after hours with the uh, gate pulled down. Yeah, Jason, you took a, you took a pilgrimage out there. I did. I was in the, the West Village at the time and, and decided to jump on the train to take a pilgrimage over there oh, right on. Uh, ages ago, man. And I got completely lost, but I, I eventually Good. found it. And, and it was like a, a denim gold mine. Was it, was it this location or the old location? I don't even know, to be quite honest with you. I just remember walking in and the store had literally everything that I love. Uh, raw denim to a jukebox to some crazy circus carny painting sure. to vintage buttons. Uh, every aesthetic, it was like walking into Brimfield with, with raw denim on the racks. Yeah, that's, that's the new shop. We, got, we, we moved over here kind of just in time before Ridgewood popped off. I was in, I had moved to my old location, 2009, from Long Beach. I was down in Long Beach for a few years. And a uh, little major life change during the whole uh, Great Recession and everything. And I just wanted a place where it was fucking warm. And Ridgewood was cheap. I wanted free heat because I was living, I was working out of a, of a garage with no heat. So that was the thing. If I had enough space and if I had heat, that's where I ended up in Ridgewood. What I loved about the store itself, it, it just looked like a, a neighborhood hangout place. Like if I lived in the, the neighborhood, I would want to go there and have a beer on the weekends, barbecue, listen to some records, you know, talk the shit and loiter as much as possible over there. Cool, man. Right on. 
So, Kristen, you've been in business at Left Field since 1998. I mean, just an incredible run. Um, when did you open the shop uh, in Ridgewood? Um, we ended up, you know what it was? It was, like I said, I kind of moved there just, just because it was, I needed space and I, and I wanted to be warm, um, which is key, especially during the winter months in New York. But, you know, just the neighborhood was definitely out there. And I was living in Greenpoint at the time. And, you know, I, I would pop my head out the doors and there wasn't much really going on at all. It was kind of a little, little hood. It was a little empty. You walk down by, by me was Palmetto by the M train tracks. And, you know, it looked real fucking shady, like old New York shit. But it, it was definitely a, a risk and a chance that that paid off because Ridgewood is definitely popping off and happening. I mean, did you ever were you ever in Williamsburg? Did you ever consider Williamsburg and Brooklyn? I, I lived in Williamsburg back in 99. I was uh, basically on between 6th and 7th on Wythe. Okay. I was living in a building that they bought three buildings for $550,000. That's and crazy. It was a little Italian couple. And the walls were falling down and the building was, was crooked. And I used to heat press on the kitchen table. My dog would shit under my kitchen table. And, you know, that's where... It, that's that was that was starting a business in New York. You work from wherever the hell you got to work from, and that was like we also had. I mean, I had we had street prostitutes on Fifth and Wife, right? Right when Vice Magazine was right there. Yeah, we had like junkies that was that were breaking into people's car. My window got stuck on, on one of the cars I had to borrow, and they had junkies sleeping in our cars at night. So it's it's. A completely different neighborhood, obviously, than, than it is now with, with, you know, corporate America over there and, and the tower people. And, and, you know, it's, look, it's nice and all, but you don't come to New York to live in nice neighborhoods. You come to New York because you want edge and you want, you want to be around creative people. You want to be artists. You want to, you want to be around things that are happening. You want to, you want to be on the forefront of everything. And unfortunately... Williamsburg is definitely not that. So I, I came out to Ridgewood, I guess, with no intention of being a part of a hipster neighborhood at all. Like I said, it was just cheap rent and free heat. And once we, once we started hearing skateboards, I remember the first time I heard a skateboard. I remember the first time I saw a yoga mat. I remember when Parquet Courts played Stone the Starving. And all of a sudden, people were like, fucking Ridgewood, Queens. Like, what the hell is that? Like, oh, shit, I live in Ridgewood, Queens. I thought this was some fucking shithole neighborhood out in the middle of nowhere. So that's, that's kind of like when I was like, oh, wow, this is like starting to pop off. Maybe I could actually open my door and sell something. And at the time, my, uh, my landlord had told me that she was selling the building. So, you know, I, I, was, I was aware of what potentially would happen. I would be kicked out. The guy who bought the building was like, oh, I have no intentions of kicking you out, but by the way, I want to put a laundromat in half your shop and you can move half your business into the basement and I won't raise your rent. I was like, yeah, go fuck yourself because my basement days are long fucking past. Like, I'm not doing basement days. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Secondly, laundromats are going to be a thing of the past because if you haven't seen the writing on the wall, everyone's got going to have laundromats in their basement with all the, you know, the situation coming on in the neighborhood. It's not, you don't need another fucking laundromat. We got one on every block. So 
we got out. That was when I was like, I'm not going to get played by this guy. And I went and looked around. I found a place. <clears throat> We're about four or five blocks from our old location. And it's, uh, it was an old sweater factory. This neighborhood was, was the uh, number one sweater manufacturing area in, in the country at the time, back in the 80s, I guess. Oh, wow. So it just lent itself to beautiful open spaces with tin ceilings and, and hard oak wood floors. And to me, it was just like, all right, this is what I want. I don't want to move into like some Soho type environment or some Williamsburg bullshit thing that's been redone and, and fancy and, and big storefront windows and lighting and stuff. I wanted to move into something raw and I wanted to kind of have a, a little bit of a Japanese vibe where I guess the one thing I really liked about Japan, it was Japanese like to find stuff. And they like to kind of find like the, the needle in the haystack. I remember going to like cool vintage stores on like the 12th, 12th floor of like some random building in like some weird neighborhood where you were like, where the fuck am I? Go up the elevator, doors will open up. Next thing you know, it's the sickest fucking vintage you've ever seen. So that was kind of like the concept of what I wanted the store to be. I wanted to look like shit from the outside. So you would pass it potentially like, you know, we still have people in the neighborhood who were like, I never knew what the hell this place was. Is this a bar? Is this a left field bar? Is this, I had some, one couple thought it was a biker hangout. And, uh, <laughs> she actually wanted, this girl actually wanted her boyfriend to try to, uh, pledge or whatever <laughs> to, <laughs> because we have, uh, we have one of our logos that was, that was based on biker culture, which was, really outlaw cultures, a mosaic outside the shop. So it's, yeah. it can be confusing um, to people that, that don't walk through the doors. That's, that's definitely my favorite piece, that uh, Sundog's mosaic right on oh, the yeah. front. Yeah, right that's, that's good stuff, man. Yeah, um, she does amazing work, and uh, it's probably, probably nothing she will do like that. Or Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a dog portrait, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> but she's extremely talented. I was like, all right, that's the thing. It's like you look for talented people and you just, you just go there because that's, that's what makes things special is when you find talented people that aren't necessarily in the same vein as what you're doing, but you kind of find that connection and, and then you come up with something completely different, hopefully, that, that other people aren't doing. It's like, well, it definitely shows. I mean, just the, the shop, the whole shop aesthetic uh, between the, the mosaics and all the little intricate pieces that you picked out. You, you've definitely got an incredible eye for things. And it shows and it's reflected in, in the clothing also, you know. Thanks, man. And also just, you know, in, in terms of that finding talented people and um, tapping into their creativity, like one of the really cool things about your brand is the name, the branding, the logo, the minor. I'm just curious, like, where does all that come from? And are you working with other people to, to generate um, that branding? Or is that something that you're doing yourself? One of the things that Jason mentioned is you have, you know, for your, your um, underwear line, uh, Choctaw, right. uh, you have some really beautiful branding uh, with your boxes. And yeah. so you're clearly spending time thinking about it. I mean, it's like he's saying, it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of that older 1950s, you know, vintage feel to it. Um, so I, like, I don't is, even want to throw that. that I, I don't even want to throw that shit out or even open it. I'm wearing one of your, your tube shirts right now. And I didn't even want to open the plastic on it. it oh, it's tube Yeah, right on. It's like, uh, it's, it's, you know, vintage artwork. And it pains me to, to break that, that, that packaging opening. I know. I, I hate I hate to see every once in a while I'll see a retail store and like I'll see some t shirts and be like, 
no packaging, they take it out. Like fucking packaging is what it's all about. Anybody, I mean, a white t-shirt from afar doesn't look like anything, but it's those those little cool details that, you know, when you, I don't know, I love advertising. I love old packaging. The whole Choctaw situation to me was, was all about the packaging. It was about the boxes, the underwear boxes. And if you've ever seen any old underwear boxes, they're beautiful. They're like amazing. They're giant, huge, hard boxes with incredible artwork and weird scenes of like old dudes smoking pipes in their underwear, you know, like just the graphics and, and the fonts are just amazing. So like Choctaw was basically based around that box, like this vintage box that I found. It was just like, why the fuck aren't we buying underwear in boxes like this anymore? <laughs> and we should tell people, so, you know, the, the Choctaw Ridge brand, again, your underwear and uh, line, it has that, it's like a, what is it, industrial factory? Uh, that's on the packaging and it's like a really intricate stencil really beautifully done if people haven't seen it definitely google it it's up on pinterest and yeah people love love that so but but not, sorry to cut you off but in terms of like you know uh i, I guess financial aspects of it, it it can't be cheap to uh produce that packaging no to be honest with you i that's that's kind of a, a weird sense of subject right now because i think the, the company that was storing my packaging potentially has tossed it. <laughs> um, the, the one mistake I did was to make a hard box. I mean, it's, it's good and it's bad, but being in New York City and trying to store, you know, massive amounts of boxes of hard, hard boxes you can't flatten out just takes up so much space. So I was ending up paying someone to store all these boxes. And I don't know, like, you know, when you do something, you want to do it right. You want to do it like they did it in the past. You don't want to take shortcuts and put a label on some generic box. You know, we did letterpress. We actually letterpressed the the cover of the box. So the, the box was letterpressed paper and wrapped around the box. It was not cheap at all. And uh, I mean, it, it really is, you know, a form of artwork. Yeah. Do you, do you find you know, consumers appreciating that stuff or do you, or you feel like this is almost like a, some sort of passion project for yourself and you know, how you were brought up and, and what you like and what you're into. Sometimes. Yeah. I think, I think the thing is, it's like, even, even when people don't know what the hell it is or, you know, they don't know letterpress, but they know it feels cool. There's something about it that draws people's attention. Obviously, People have been doing it and they, and they love it and they do it for their wedding parties or whatever and it's like fine. But to me, it's, it's just about bringing back like just, you know, this time period where everything was just so beautifully done. Like, you know, you walk around the neighborhoods and you see like the Lower East Side where, where you're living and you see these beautiful old buildings and then you see next to it like some glass box filled with like a bunch of frat boy douchebags you know and you're like what what's happening to our neighborhood what's what's going on we have you know these beautiful turn of the century buildings with with uh you know amazing details on them there's faces and there's just the architecture is people gave a shit about all the little details and and that's like the one thing you see when people make buildings is they don't care about any details they, there's no pride in in making a building it's all about the bottom line what's you know how cheap can we potentially make it and yeah. and what's the highest rent we can get from it 
So a lot of times, yeah, there's, there's things that there's so many things we did. We just, we just made some vintage linen reproduction postcards of, of an old New York greetings from New York um, postcard that I love. I, I've got a bunch of old postcards that we sell at the shop for people that come in potentially from out of town and want to send a postcard home. Like there's nothing cooler than getting a postcard from the fifties on, on linen paper you know, to send that back home, that's, to me, that's just like, that, that would be the coolest thing to receive. I mean, you, you've definitely branched out in, in different aspects. Everything from like your, your porcelain dishware. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. Like who, who's doing that? Yeah. I mean, these are all, these are all things I guess that I personally am really passionate about. Yeah. And a lot of these things I know will make absolutely no money and won't sell. And I don't really care because I make money in some places, in some places, it's all about bringing up the aesthetic back to what it used to be. Cause yeah. we're, we've lost, we've lost aesthetic. We've lost a certain beauty and artistic, you know, value in, in things. There's everything just done. So ah, there's just no integrity. There's very little integrity in things anymore. Yeah. And to me, even if it's a lost leader and even if nobody buys it, you know, it's just the, the fact that I have something there, I have something there where you come in, you can buy a nice reproduction linen postcard and it's there if you want it. And, you know, it's like I said, it's, it, I don't really care if I make money on it or not. It's just about bringing things back to people that don't even know it exists. There's, there's a whole generation of people that don't even know like all these wonderful things and existed before them and, and yeah no I, I definitely can relate because you know I'm, the audience can't see me but I, I'm sitting in front of thousands upon thousands of records and that in itself you know it's a it's a tangible piece of artwork that people open up they, they play they listen to their music they can read the lyrics it's not this uh streaming service or mp3 you know it, it's it's a tangible piece of artwork I, I agree I think you know when when we got the notification from Cuomo obviously we knew things were shutting down and, and things were getting intense and it came out of nowhere blindsided like when it was like bars are closing Tuesday and that was when everybody just got the you know carpet pulled out from under the feet we're like holy shit New York bars are closing like what the fuck are we gonna do like this is you know this is um, this is New York culture we're used to going out four or five nights a week like a lot of people that's when you realize Things were crazy. And then when we got the official, you know, you have to shut your doors. I, you know, I, I fought it tooth and nail, not because I wanted people to make people sick. I had nothing to do with making people sick by working in my shop. You know, I mean, I've, I've no, nobody was coming in the shop the week before anyway. I had like maybe two people a week. But I guess my point is, I thought we were going to fall on our face. I thought we were going to, we were just fucked. Like, no money was coming in. What the hell am I going to do? And it just goes to show, like, you know, the support that we had was, was so amazing from, from people that follow us that, no, like, people were broke. They didn't know where the next dime was coming from, but they were still buying. They were still buying stuff. They were buying a bandana. They were buying a shirt. They were buying whatever they could buy just to support. They're like, we want to support you because we appreciate your values and your vision and your your perspective and that meant a lot you know that was that was huge and it was like you know we're like oh it's just gonna last for about a week and then it's gonna like we're gonna fall flat and so far like to be honest we've been doing pretty well like 
not to say people shouldn't buy anything now, but I'm just, I was just really proud of like, I guess the community that follows us and supports us that they didn't, they were there for us when we needed them. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. That's great, man. And that's because you, you built a brand that people connect with. They know what you're doing and, and they're supporting that. So that's, that's awesome to see. And one of the really cool things you have right now is actually uh, you're doing a run with Vidalia Mills. And we just had uh, Eric Goldstein on. He was talking about his production uh, going on down there in Louisiana. And we're really excited about that because we're, you know, we're bringing American production of denim back to the United States. This is the first time that we have a uh, salvage production in a meaningful quantity since uh, Cone closed their White Oak plant. So um, you have that right now on, I think it's pre-order, right? Yeah. We, um, unfortunately... Our factory was in shelter in place up until last Monday. So I've had a lot of stuff. I mean, we had some of our work uniform, uh, jeans, really interesting uh, dead stock salt and pepper cone fabric that was ready to roll out. We've got a hickory stripe from Mount Vernon that was ready to roll out. They basically shut their doors that night, and we had we were going to be shipping those two styles like two days later. So... Yeah, there was nothing we could do, and it's 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 kind of like a helpless feeling because you know you've got all this stuff, all these ideas, and all this cool stuff that you had planned to deliver, and then you're just like, all right, so so how long do we wait? You know, first it was waiting to April seventh, and then it was like to the end of April, and then it was the May fifteenth, and then it was anyway. Once once I think once California realized how bad they were in financially. Newsom, Governor Newsom, was like, fucking, we need to open the doors. Like, all of a sudden, I remember that Thursday when the jobs numbers came out. Must have just opened his eyes and was like, the following day, they were doing, like, they were opening businesses when they weren't going to open businesses until at least the end of the month. So, So are you guys back up then? You guys are, the factory's open? The factory just opened up. This is the frustrating situation that we're dealing with right now is... People are making more money not working than they made when they were working. And that's a huge problem for American manufacturing is that nobody wants to work anymore. And people are making too much money scamming the system than having pride in their job and getting out there and getting up and, ha- and making a living. Like, you know, you think about, you hear these stories about like the workers outside the Golden Gate Bridge back in the day. And there were people lined up for blocks to work on that bridge, waiting for someone to fall off the bridge and die that day so they could take the job. We can't even get people to work a regular factory job selling denim and selling stuff that, like, you know, cool jobs. Not even, you know, it's not Laverne and Shirley, you know, working at the, uh, putting bottle caps on beers. You know, this is like, this is for a lot of denim geeks out there. I feel like there would be a lot of people that'd be like, hey, you know what? I would rather work at a, at a denim factory then go, you know, making some stupid mass-produced button or, 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 I don't know. It's actually a subject that I really wanted to get into into with you, uh, Christian. Um, so, you know, you've been doing this for a while, and you've seen a lot of jobs go, go overseas. It's difficult to produce in the United States. It's expensive, you know, in particular in New York City, right? To produce a, a pair of jeans in New York is, is very expensive. You can do it, um, but it's going to cost you. So I'm just curious, like, so now we have denim production back here in the United States. What would it take to get denim manufacturing back here? Do you think that the government needs to play a role? Is there subsidies or tax breaks that, that need to happen? What's your, what's your thoughts on, on bringing 
back manufacturing? Well, obviously, you know, we have Amer- we have a president that, that talks about make America great again, but his hat probably isn't even made in America. I know his ties weren't made in America. I know his <laughs> daughter's company's stuff is made in China. So, you know, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna promote American manufacturing, you gotta offer tax incentives. You gotta offer tax breaks. You gotta offer helping people out. Just like when Amazon was gonna move into New York. How much how many millions of dollars did we throw at Amazon? But yet we we don't even offer a tax break to people that are manufacturing in America. You know, I like, think the only way that, that the government steps in to really help out is by recognizing that this is critical. Uh, you know, it's, it's essential work to actually make clothing, make um, produce here. So Yeah, I think one key, one key ingredient is this, this is this is a thing. And I'm not trying to be too right uh, thinking and saying this is people need to take pride in getting up and doing work and stop trying to scam the system. Work your job, no matter whatever it be, sweeping the street, whatever it is, take pride in it and actually do work and, and care about like what you're doing. And there's, there's just so much free money out there. That's ridiculous. Like people just will not work those jobs. I've spoken to so many factories that say, we can't hire anybody. We have a generation of people that once they're gone, we don't know who the hell we're going to hire because the next generation sure as hell doesn't want to want to take these jobs up. So that's that's the biggest issues. Of like I know factories. Um, one of the factories that Levi's was using right before they fully pulled out of of uh, America was on the border of El Paso, and they yeah. had daycare systems set up. They were bringing, I think, potentially people across the border because nobody will work in a factory. My thing is, you know. I went to school. We had Votech. Votech was generally at some point they said, "Your kid, you're not going to college. You know, you're gonna you're gonna do this. So this is gonna be what you're gonna do, whether you go to college or not." Not saying one person is better than the other by any means, but if you're going to potentially work in a factory, or why not be certified for certain machines? Because like in New York, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of people from from local factories, and the biggest issue is a nobody really knows how to sew well, and b they'll jump ship the next day if somebody's paying five cents, you know, more piece price to do a garment or, or fifty cents or whatever it is. So my thing is, is, I feel like there should be some kind of universal situation where somebody can be trained to use certain machines, whether it's a marrow or straight stitch. You get certified saying that you can use that machine professionally to go into any factory. Once you're certified, then you can take your certification and go anywhere you want. The factory will know that that person can sell and they're not wasting their time with somebody. And, you know, you can obviously make more money and the whole system would be more efficient by being able to train more people and 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 like i said like having pride in what you do like i feel like you know sewing to me is 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 not like sewing in a factory to me like and for like the japanese there's a lot of people that that would intern and and work for for free for years to learn how to sew because they think it's such a respectable position, but nobody in America thinks it is anymore. Well, I think it's about, it's, it's definitely about creating that buzz and, and yeah. that exposure and educating the younger generations to get them excited about manufacturing and these lost uh, arts, you know. Um, so it's about really educating the young, younger generation and doing some kind of uh, mentor program or school 
where they can actually get their hands dirty and, and learn about these, um, these machines and stuff. Yeah, actually hearing you talk about it, it's like perfect for an apprenticeship program, actually. And, you know, like where, where I work, people have come and said, hey, you know, you don't have to pay me, but just teach me how to sew, teach me how to make jeans. Yeah. Uh, and I have, but you know, it takes a lot of time. It takes time to get somebody going from, you know, I, I use my home machine to be able to operate 12 different machines to make a, a great pair of jeans. That takes time and you need some kind of apprenticeship program. You need, you probably do need some type of government assistance to come in and make the economics work where you can actually start training a workforce in that. That's, it's true. I mean, you know, and to go from certification potentially from, from operating a home machine and, you know, there's a lot of the older generation, like my mom, she sewed her clothes. She made her Halloween costumes. We never went out and bought Halloween costumes. She'd make them. You know, like that, people back then, they knew how to do stuff because they didn't have a choice. Like they were either broke and, and, and figure it out, yeah. or it was something that was passed down from, from their mothers or fathers or whoever and said, this is how we do it. But like, you know, we can have government institutions or schools just like we have all these colleges and everybody's going to college and then you graduate and for me it was like what the hell am I going to do with a sociology major and then you can have that option like say hey I love I love I love denim I love jeans I'm into the manufacturing process you could go down and potentially get certified on a certain machine take a take a class maybe four to six weeks and become certified and then go and work in a factory and there's nothing wrong with that that's respectable to me yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's heartbreaking to go into the garment district in New York City and you just see it getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then all these other industries, you know, in particular tech is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, there is an economic component of that. But when you stop making things in the United States, it does feel like you lose a part of our identity as a, as a culture, as a people. So. Yeah, you know, I just, what I love about your brand is it's like every component of it is like, this is hard work and we value it and we uplift the people who are doing it. And that's it. You know, it's like, it's, it's a really direct message with, with that minor and all, all the brain that goes into like, this is hard work and that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we did with, with the denim, you know, some people wonder, you know, what is the coal mining thing about and why do we have the minor flasher and the pick and shovel? And it's not like an afterthought, you know, it's not randomly we use pick and shovel like some other brands, you know, down the road, this was part of a whole story that we we wanted to tell. I was two hours from Scranton, Pennsylvania, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, which was uh, coal mining country, the turn of the century. And and I'm not sure when it, when everything kind of started shutting down, but that was the best, you know, anthracite coal came out of that region. And to me, that was an interesting story that really wasn't told. Like, you know, we have the Levi's Gold Rush. And I like it, and I think it's a cool story, but coming from Philadelphia, kind of like, I don't know, it's a little grittier. I feel like people from the East Coast, New York, Philadelphia, are a little more raw, and I wanted to give a little bit more raw version of workwear. And to me, coal mining was probably like the, the dirtiest, the grittiest job that was just real. It's just like dirty, raw, New York City, Philadelphia, you know, to me. So I wanted to basically tell the story of workwear and chose coal mining because I thought that was that was a cool part of of state that I grew up in. And it was a story that hadn't been told. And, you know, you have a, a lot of this, the stuff that we, we kind of throw like different green salvage and we have the green paint on the pick and shovel. There's a little nod to the Irish, um, Irish myself, part Irish. You know, so there's, there's a whole lot of different parts that you think about and the flasher and 
you know, the, the leather label, everything coordinates the, the bandana pocketings to me. Like when we first started doing denim, like I was like, well, all right, well, what's going to make us stand out? Like everyone can just make a pair of jeans, it's like making, you know, like a hamburger, like what, what is going to make you stand out? So there's branding a branding to me is a huge factor, you know, and especially there's a certain level of bravado in the branding, which I like, you know, it's like, it's like hip hop. You know, back in the day, there's, there's a level of bravado in these old companies where we're the best, you know, and, and I kind of respect that. And we use that a lot of times. And I think it's okay to, to, to believe in yourself and say, yeah, this is the, this is the best pair of jeans you're going to get. And all this other stuff is bullshit. And look at their labels and look at the rivets. They couldn't be bothered to do custom rivets. You know, like a lot of these brands, like you look at the stuff and it's like all these little details, like what is made, you didn't even think your details out. You didn't think your story out. You didn't think about your packaging. Yeah. These are all integral parts of your story and your branding and, and every aspect of product and the creation. So it's like, how, how do you respect somebody that still is using generic blank buttons like to me i just yeah. you know like that just blows my mind and you use a word in there uh about the the, the coal miners uh use grit and when i think of left field and when i think of you in particular and that you've been doing it since 1998 before almost anybody else was was in the game that's the word that always comes to me when i think about your story it's like grit you know you just found a way you don't have to go into the, the background too much but right when you started this you were in debt you just you, you pulled yourself up from your bootstrap and you got it done which leads me to a question i've always wanted know where does the name left field come from i guess left field for me was i always grew up when i grew up especially when i was younger i was always a bit of a weird kid somewhat of a loner and like for me like coming out of left field was was where i was coming from it was coming from a weird perspective from an outside perspective from a perspective that wasn't popular and it was like the thought processes that you were thinking when you were seeing everybody kind of operating a very sheepish way and you could see people mimicking each other and doing certain things to fit into the social core group and especially as an outsider you know you have you have a lot of feelings about different things and like that and and i guess being a bit of an outsider enables you to think a little bit more freely so it's a little bit of play on words because when we first came out, it was a bit more varsity inspired with a, a little bit of a streetwear kind of vibe. We had a little mm-hmm. bit of streetwear. This is back in 98. So there was, there was, I didn't want it to be like, you know, I didn't want to do reproduction stuff because Japanese do reproduction stuff really well. Create your own story. Like that's to me, like, I don't know when you look at vintage stuff, like for me, all the all the things that that you respect on vintage like when you look at the labels you look at the back of the rivets you look at all these details of what makes things special the biggie and all these little nuances are the things that when we create something we try to put back into it from knowing like as a vintage collector what are you looking for all these little nuances like from this period from like you know 1940 to 1950s this these are the little nuances that change so we constantly keep changing things up not necessarily to be like that but just because you think of you think of better ways and better things and maybe i have a little bit more money to put into to the rivets and we just i'd say probably about four years ago we changed the rivets like on the rivet we use a concave um washer which kind of lifts off the denim a little bit, which I like a lot better than a lot of people use a flat flat washer. It gives more um, gives more character to me. I feel like, yeah. and we did another thing on our 
on the die that puts the rivet on, we have a special die that flattens out the head so it looks like a hand-hammered rivet. So there's like little nuances, you know, like putting, we had the skull in the back in the back of all the rivets, now we're putting, which didn't necessarily go with, with the denim. And then I was like, all right, doesn't really make sense. Let's put the picket shovel. So just little changes and little nuances. I feel like ultimately you want people to think down the road to look back and be like, oh, this 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 product is from you know 2005 to 2010 because I know that they used to run this specific one or, or you know a rounded burr versus a concave washer. You know all these little things that that make each decade or period special are things you have to constantly like evolve. The brand is in constant evolution. We constantly try to make things better all the time. And I hope that people realize that our bottom line is not about, you know, profit margin. It's about giving people the most special, unique thing we can give them and to have it have a sense of essence, to have a sense of, I don't know, like antique things to me have essence. There's certain things that have a certain quality and being to them. Just holding and owning constantly reward you. It has a certain feeling that every time you put it on, you know, you're getting that same special feeling as when you first bought it. You know, if, if you truly make something or have something, and we all know when you buy that certain special thing, whether it's antique or if it's new, you don't doesn't lose that that essence. It doesn't lose that power and that specialness that that you get from from being around it or wearing it. To me, that's that was what I always wanted to strive for is ha- is making something that you constantly like loved every time you wore it with the same intensity as when you bought it. Yeah, man. I think that's the difference between uh, business and, and art. You know, it's like you pour something into that. There's a spirit to your pieces. Yeah. And it's not just about the bottom line. It's like there's a different, different way to measure if something's a, a success or not. Does it stand the test of time? Do people love it? Are yeah. they responding to what you put into it? So, and, yeah. and, and also, you know, Eric and myself being new dads, we want to, you know, if we're going to purchase something, it's something I kind of want to hand down to my daughter and, and vice versa for Eric's son. That's the thing is like, whatever I look at, whether it's my, you know, whether it's my silverware or my cups or my plates, everything in your life should have a certain level of essence to it. Otherwise it's garbage. Why do you even have it? Like you don't need to have thousands of items. You need to have one of one special thing for everything you need. And if it's special enough, you won't need anything until it breaks or wears out. And that's, that's the difference between fast fashion and somebody that makes something with integrity as far as that's what we try to do. Christian, I'm, I, I want to know, so back in 1998, like who was a left field customer when you started and how has that customer evolved over time? Like who are they now? To be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't really know who our customer was. A lot of it turned out to be Japanese. The first season I came out, I ended up reproducing, taking old yearbooks um, that I found at flea markets and ripping out pages and I would cut and paste things that, that I copied at one of the New York libraries that I was living near. I didn't really have um, Photoshop and I didn't have uh, you know, any graphic skills. So I basically just cut and paste things, just kind of like old punk rock zines and, and taped them together and, and made up a catalog and photocopied it down at like Kinko's or, or one of the you know, places down in the East Village or 
I think a lot of buyers at the time, because I ended up getting in, uh, I ended up getting Louis in, in Louis of Boston, which was a really amazing, beautiful store. I got into Fred Siegel. I got into Ships Japan right out the box the first season. And I think, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, I, I knew what the hell I was doing and, and I was that special, but I think I was coming from a completely different angle, which, you know, i.e. the name left field, that people like appreciate. People appreciate seeing things from a different perspective and, and not from this, I don't know, this corporate mass-produced kind of garmento mentality, which was going on, you know, at the time. Like, you know, what, what your options were. Like, as a buyer, when I worked as a buyer, I would, I ended up, this, this girl ended up telling me about Kinakuni Bookstore. And if you haven't been there yet, please do. It's, it's, Amazing bookstore, um, right across from Bryant Park. Anyway, Japanese magazines to me, when I started shopping and looking through those magazines, just were just blew my mind. It was just so much amazing product. And like, you look at pages and it'd be a whole page of like polos and a whole page of jean details and a whole page of sweatshirts and 1940 sweatshirts and 1950 sweatshirts. And it was like stuff that we didn't even know existed. You know, all these things that we took for granted, we didn't even realize that we had all these amazing products like Philston and Levi's and the old Wranglers and, and, and things like that that had integrity. You know, not all these things so much anymore. You know, it's, it's weird that the Japanese kind of showed us what we had. They had to show us what we had for us to really yeah. appreciate it, which was kind of strange. Yeah, but I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did. A lot of these things would have been long gone. Yeah, that's like um, David Marks' book, Amitora, How the Japanese Saved American Fashion. So in a sense, yeah, they preserved everything that was good about it. Do you feel like, so in the earlier days, there was a big component of your customers that were Japanese. Do you feel like today you have a better sense of who they are? You know, are they more domestic, more people from the U.S.? Or I would definitely say I had a lot of Japanese customers in, in the very early beginning. So there's like a process where it's almost, it's like a weird courting kind of relationship, like checking you out, they're feeling you out there. It's like, there's, it's almost like a very primal thing where they're sniffing you out to see who you are and what you stand for and the integrity of the product. I guess yeah. after a while, once you get the seal of approval, all of a sudden the doors start opening. Then it's like, all right, you've been, you've been accepted. It's like almost like, you know, like uh, Godfather or something like when you're, you're brought into the mafia. Now, now it's like all these doors open up. But the thing for me is the brand ended up going in a direction that I didn't necessarily really like. I ended up, you know, it was a lot of stuff like, oh, you should do it more this way. You should do more of this and you should do more of that. And it ended up to me catering to what they wanted me to do than rather what I wanted to do. And it got to a point where I was like, I don't even like what the hell I'm making. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It's weird. It's goofy. I don't want to do this anymore. So long story short, like 2009 is when the shit hit the fan for me economically and potentially almost went bankrupt. I got to a point where it's like, I don't, I don't want to make certain things that people are asking me to. I don't care if they want it or not. Like, to me, it's just like... I felt like I was losing control of of, uh, of something. Like it wasn't even mine anymore. It was like it was like theirs. They were like saying you should do it like this, and I'm like, all right. So you know, this store wants it like this, and this store wants it like that. So you kind of lose your vision. Hmm. And I kind of turned it around. I was like, I want to make stuff 
I started to phase out doing stuff specifically for the Japanese market and started doing stuff that I wanted to make. The subtle nuances and the fabrics and construction and the stitching and the little tiny details, you know, to me are what, what makes something special. Well, you definitely weren't one to conform to what the trend was or what fashion dictated. And it really is about the nuances and your, your small yeah. details. I mean, look at the, the small hidden pocket under the collar on your leather Vanson jacket. I mean, right. that in itself, you know, is, is brilliant. I love that. I've, I've always wanted a, a secret pocket under my collar. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? It's like yeah. Perfect yeah. For cops and concerts. Yeah. So Christian, at the time, 2009, did you already have your three main cuts, uh, uh, Chelsea, Alice, and the Greaser, or was that something that you developed later? A lot of these cuts kind of, like like I said, everything's kind of like evolution. Left field is completely funded by me. That's a huge factor in evolution. And the nice thing about things, you know, I guess is they happen organically, and they happen because they should happen that way. And obviously, supply and demand. If, if you're making something right and people are buying it, then you make more of it. It's it's difficult because you can't always do everything the way you want to do it, and you can't always, you know, you don't have all the the manpower or the technology or the things to make things the way you want. But as you grow and grow, it's like you just, the more money you have and, and whatever you can do to make things better is like what we're constantly about, like that like evolutionary process. So, you know, we started out with the greaser fit, which is like a traditional kind of 501, like 50s, like the greaser and the Soch was like based on American history. And it was such a symbolic name to me, like to have a name, like, like the, the Atlas obviously represents Charles Atlas. Atlas. I, I called it Charles Atlas until Charles Atlas's family came after me and demanded money. And I said, nobody knows who the hell Charles Atlas is anyway. I'm not paying you money. So fuck off. But you know, like Charles Atlas represent weightlifters, you know, like he was, he was yeah. the, the guy on the beach that was skinny and got sand kicked in his face when he was a kid. And then he went and worked out and created his own workout regiment and became a huge and successful and, and big guy. And so as we had customers saying like, do you have anything with guys that have muscular thighs that, that turned into a whole, whole huge thing for us? Like so many people like my thighs are too big to fit in jeans. I can't find any jeans that fit. I've got to size up two, three waist sizes to to fit my thighs. So we're like, all right, let's, let's make that happen. Like, let's do the Charles, like call it Charles Atlas. The Chelsea fit was a, a slim jean. that was named after like a rocker fit. It was Chelsea hotel. Like, you know, I celebrated my 40th birthday at the Chelsea hotel. To me, that was like the essence of, of New York rock and roll and, and artist and just craziness. So we called it the Chelsea. So yeah, I guess things, Things come out as I started to get more money, I could, I could make another fit. We just did the, the work uniform collection, which to me is a throwback on workwear that's made in America. Basically, we wanted to do American, made in America version of, of what workwear was in the past. All the little details and nuances and things that made it special. That was kind of a new collection for us. You know, from the Conmar zippers, Conmar was a defunct zipper company that went out of business. Ideal zippers came along and bought all the original dyes of the old vintage zippers. So for a lot of our collection, the work uniform, we used Conmar zippers. You know, Montgomery Ward powerhouse label was inspiration for me. 
for the label. I love I love that. And just the essence of factory, the factory and American manufacturing was such a romantic symbol of the golden age of American manufacturing. So we use that you know as inspiration for our label again we use green bar tacks is because a lot of times of the old workwear stuff had green bar tacks and i have said in the past that potentially it was a nod to the irish since there were so many irish that came over at the turn of the century as cheap labor you know you look at like you know oshkosh and the four leaf clover and different things like that and the green stitching and is it is it a nod to irish i don't know maybe it is i like the story so we went with it. So we use green bar tacks. It's a nice little detail. It's very subtle, but to me, like it's a special little detail. Our zipper tapes we've been using for the work uniform, green zipper tapes in, in most of the different uh, garments. So that ties in with the green bar tacks. As, I guess as, as we can do more and more things, we branch out. We started out with the greaser fit, and right now we're at three fits, I guess, with jeans. Um, I want to get your perspective. Like, what does the future of the industry look like? You know, this puts the coronavirus and, and that people can't go uh, to physical stores um, or that they're, they're scared to right now. It puts so much pressure on retailers and the guys who, you know, you're distributing your, your genes through. Like, what does the landscape look like in, you know, one or two years from now? Are these retailers going to be making it? Is there going to be a, a change in terms of consumer preferences and everybody ordering, you know, directly from your website online? What are your, what are your thoughts about the future? As far as as far as purchasing, or as far as brands, or or direction, or yeah, kind of wherever you want to take it. I mean, there's there's so much uncertainty, but certainly in terms of you know, like yes, brands, but also like what what the consumer is going to be doing. We've definitely, like you guys were mentioning earlier, people want to know who you are, or who is this guy, and who does he represent? Is he bullshit? Is he fake? Is he corporate? People want to sniff you out, and I respect that. You know, they want to know, are you real? Are you authentic? And it's kind of like what I experienced with the Japanese. And, and to be honest with you, I respect it. I respect the people want to know that before they put their money there because they should. And they shouldn't be giving money to, to a lot of these corporate companies. And you know, a lot of these people are just knocking shit off and they see something cool, which, which I experienced in, in my past. It's like so many, so many companies are just, you'll go out and just stick your neck out. You'll do something different and they'll just go and copy you so that they can take their share back. But they won't stick their neck out and do something that's different because they don't want to shake things up or they're too corporate or there's too much red tape or, you know, or their boss won't let them. And this, this is too radical of an idea, no matter how stupid, you know, a little minor change or, or concept might be. I think it's good. I think a lot of these department stores should go out of business. I think a lot of these brands should go out of business. I think we need to start thinking about why should I give my money to that person? And sometimes it's tedious because, you know, it's like a lot of people kind of want want a piece of you, you know, like they want to they'll come to the store and they want to like experience something. And I respect it. And it's, it's hard to individually give a piece of yourself, like I guess like customer for them to experience, you know, that, that connection with you. And we try to do as much as possible. You know, it's just two of us here. It's me and Johnny. I work the sales floor. I, you know, Johnny works the sales floor. There's, you know, I pick up the phone when people call. I answer emails. There's, there's no, there's no hierarchy. There's no customer service person. It's just two of us. So, you know, I think we're in touch as much as we can be with our with our customers and, and people and what people want 
and you know, we have our direction. We listen to people to a certain point. I mean, we couldn't agree more just in terms of knowing who you're buying from, knowing the backstory to that brand, and also you know, knowing the founder, because just so much of what, what a brand is about comes from that original vision. So, yeah, we just appreciate, you know, you know, you having the conversation with us and educating our listeners and our members about who you guys are and what you're doing. And yeah, it's beautiful stuff. And we, uh, we wish you every success in the future. So, and well, awesome. thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, platform. I'm, uh, sometimes I'm a little raw, but I think that's okay. And I think sometimes it's, it's uh, necessary. But um, it was a pleasure to meet you guys. And uh, what I was thinking down the road is is when things potentially, I don't know what the hell is going to happen, a vaccine or not. We did want to do a little uh, barbecue or something to introduce Vidalia Mills. And we're talking about, um, you know, talking to some people about a release, specifically with the New York denim hang. I think that would be a kind of a cool way to bring the community together and thank everyone from us to show our appreciation back to the people that supported us during these crazy fucking times where we thought 20 some years, you don't know what the hell's going to happen next. You, you look at this and you don't know if, if nothing's going to come in. That's, that's the crazy thing about this business is there's no guarantee that you're going to get any sales tomorrow. There's no guarantee. Yeah. And you never know when it's going to, it's going to go off. So you know, you, you've got to be humble. Humility keeps you in the game and keeps you connected to people. I think that's important to be, to remember. Yeah. I always think of entrepreneurship, like uh, sailing a pirate ship, you know, you just push off from the shore and you don't know what you're going to find out there, but you just, you get better at what you do and, and you, you find a way to make it work. So yeah, we will definitely take you up on that barbecue offer. We would love to, to see you. Uh, we'd love to see Eric and the guys from the Dolly Mills. We're really excited about what they're doing and we'd love to just come down to the store and support you. Cool. Well, hey, we um, have a little tradition of ending the, the podcast with a series of um, rapid fire questions. So um, yeah, these are all just like short little questions and just get your, get your answers from them and, and turn and burn. So you ready? Yeah. Question one, what motivates you? I think a lot of it comes from frustration of what could be and what is. Yeah. Scratch your itch, right? Two, Yankees or Mets? Phillies. <laughs> uh, Knicks or Nets? Philly, originally. That's, that's the one rule. You, you never turn your back on your hometown team. Uh, what's the best beach near New York City? Fort Tilden. I hate to say this because I don't want everybody going there, but it's, it's beautiful. It was an old, uh, I think it started in World War One, World War II uh, Army base. They actually had yeah. nuclear uh, missiles there. They still have some old military buildings. They have military silos. Patty Smith did a huge art installation out there in an a abandoned military building. And there's dunes. And it's just got a really weird Planet of the Apes kind of, uh, kind of meets Lure of the Flies vibe. Yeah, because it's so close to New York City. But then you go out there and, you know, sometimes there's just nobody there. So Hopefully. <laughs> I think this week. <laughs> not, not after this podcast. Yeah, this week. So, yes. uh, growing up, what other brands inspired you? Ah, uh, growing up. I don't know, man. I, you know, I went from Levi's to Lee, you know, like just weird little trends, like as a kid, you know, wearing Converse and Vans and, you know, I was, it was really kind of how you pulled it off really and how you put it together. Yeah. And nobody told you, you know, how to wear your jeans and how to fold your cuff. That's, that's the one thing I think people need to realize is stop asking other people how you do things and create your own style. 
for yourself. That's a perfect segue into ne the next question, which is, uh, do you do a single cuff, double cuff, or no cuff? I think I do a single. I definitely, no, I do. I definitely do double cuff most of the time. Sometimes I do single. A lot of times I've done double cuffs because as we do hemming here, but I don't know. I just, I just cuff them up. It's just like, boom, boom, done. Don't even think about it. Done. What advice would you give to someone starting their own denim brand today? Think about what will separate yourself from everything else out there and what's going to make yourself unique. Because the last thing we need is another person coming out with another boring brand that looks like everything else. Brand uh, identification, you're not making anything. It's, very, it's a very basic, simple thing. So your branding's got to be key. And it's got to be smart. And it's got to have integrity and aesthetic. And, you know, that's the key is aesthetic. It's, it's not always the loudest thing that gets seen. It's, it's, it's understanding the nuances. And sometimes people don't even understand them until – you know, weeks down the road and they see like the inside of a rivet or something like that, or they realize that their inside of their coin pocket has salvage and it doesn't need to be shown. Not everything needs to be shown immediately. It's like those little things that you find make it more special than things that are screaming at you. What's the best resource for someone to learn more about denim? I'm not really a huge YouTuber. Uh, it's not my generation, I guess, but um, I would say join communities like yourselves talk to other people, go on forums, potentially maybe YouTube and just, just research. I mean, shit, I grew up, I had a telephone book. I didn't have internet. That's how I found my information is through a telephone book. That's how I look for stuff. Like we didn't have, you know, not to date myself, but we didn't, I didn't, I couldn't just hit Google up and ask him a question. Anyone now has it a thousand times easier than, than like anything I grew up with as a kid. So the trick is finding the good information, right? So much information out there, but uh, who else would you like us to interview? You know what? I, I would like, I would like to you to interview potentially some, some of the workers of Vidalia Mills. Christian, where can people learn more about that field? Uh, from guys like yourself, I guess. Yeah. Dig deep. That's to me. It's just like, like DJs and everything. You know what? You got to dig in the crate sometimes. Awesome, man. Well, hey, that's, uh, that's it from us. Thanks for jumping on, uh, on Zoom and, and having a conversation. It's been incredibly um, educational, inspirational talking to you. Cool. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to, um, to tell a little bit about what we're coming from. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, man. It was fun. Thanks, guys. Mm -hmm.